Hey gang, welcome to episode 97 of the No Persinium podcast, your guide to everything immersive, brought to you by listeners like you. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. We have a big show for you today. They're all big shows these days. Let's just be honest about that. Our guest is Sophia Stoller, the creator choreographer and director of The Other Side, a new immersive dance theater piece that is opening in LA. Uh, I think tonight, tonight's, that's the night it's opening. Maybe it opened last night. I'm not good with dates and times and stuff. That's what the newsletter is for. Uh, Sophia and I have an excellent question right here at the No Proscenium kitchen table uh, where we do the show. And um, I'm looking forward to getting that to you. Um, stick around after the show because it's it's been a really busy week and I want to talk to you about some stuff, but I want to get us into the interview a little faster. But first, a word about our sponsors. Our sponsors are lovely, wonderful people. They're just like you. They go to patreon.com slash no and they drop as little as a dollar a month. Some of them drop more. Some of the people who recently dropped money on this show include Lauren Bellow and Jake Odenberg. Thank you, boy, both. Hey, I can speak sometimes for joining this crazy, crazy cause. Um, we've recently re-upped the uh, goals, and I'm going to articulate some more goals onto that Patreon soon, kind of between the uh, $400 and $1,000 level, because we are in a period of aggressive expansion, and I promise never to do that particular uh, line reading ever again. Uh, not on the show anyway. I'll do it in real life all the time. Um, some very exciting stuff in terms of how far our reach can go. But in order to do that and do it ethically, we need to get some more money flowing through, and that comes down to y'all. Um, so... Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, check out the features in terms of, uh, you know, the different tiers and whatnot. But, you know, that's mostly for show. What really matters is the more people who back, the better off we are at any level. So even even a dollar a month makes a big difference in terms of helping the folks who help this crazy enterprise uh, help them do this without eating it uh, too hard of a bite out of their pocketbooks. The coffee is starting to wear off. I need to drink more. Hey, sometimes you listen for news and notes. Let's do news. We'll do notes a little bit later. First up, uh, I want to crow about something. As I wrote the intro this morning, and yes, I half write the intro and improvise like off the writing, uh, there were 699 members over at Everything Immersive, which is the Facebook group that we started just a month ago, just a month ago, and we're at 699 members. That is a very exciting number. It is very active. Um, I'm loving everything that's going on over there. Uh, I, I do encourage everyone when they post to, if it's about a show, to like put the, the city that it's happening in at the top because we got an international. You don't you don't realize this, but like people, and and I'm weirded out sometimes by this fact. People all over the world have joined hands, and they've gotten on this train. And yeah, yeah, I went there. Um, it's it boggles my mind. Um, it really does. And that's 
also true of everything immersive. So don't just assume that because you're talking about a show, maybe your show, and you're in LA or in New York or you're, you're anywhere, that you're talking to people who are in LA or who are in New York because we got them in Chicago, in Cincinnati, in London, in New Zealand, and all over the planet. And that's fantastic because the goal is to track everything immersive. But that's not the only place we do that. And I've been giving a little short shrift lately to uh, the precursor of everything immersive, which is the no proscenium slack. And I want to encourage folks to to jump in there, because if you're looking for like a free flow in conversation tool, Slack is really excellent for that. And we've got channels dedicated to the different subdisciplines of immersive and also to the different regions. So it's a great place to connect with people who are local to you uh, in like a nice, clear way. And the fun thing we do over there is that Slack has a notification system that can ping your phone. And sometimes when tickets go on sale for things like, oh, The Nest in Los Angeles, those tickets may sell out within 30 minutes of the public sale happening. And a great way to, um, you know, stay on top of that is, provided we have the information in time, the Slack, because we can send out a notification to everyone in a channel and let them know the tickets went on sale. So organized by region organized by topic, channel alerts with ticket alerts to let everybody jump in and keep rolling. So that's the Slack. To get on that, email me, noah at noproscenium.com. Now let's just dust over a few things that we're looking at this week. Uh, number one, uh, the newsletters are coming out this week are LA and New York, and also the Southeast is is going to be rolling in as well. So we're going to hit you three times this weekend. Um, we've got people going to a bunch of the shows in LA. I'll talk about that in a second. Here are shows that we're tracking around the country. Number one, Houston, top of the list again. Strange Bird Immersive's The Man From Beyond is a 90-minute experience combining immersive theater and an escape game, and it is a Houdini seance escape room theater experience. I would give just about anything to be able to beam into Houston and check that out. Um, don't have funds right now. Uh, there's a, there's a whole tour I want to do that are like off the, out of like LA and New York right now. And, and this piece from strange bird immersive is definitely near the top of the list. Like that and meow wolf are the two things I really got to do. If you don't know about meow wolf, it's just fun to say, um, over in New York, um, got word that seeing you, which is the new piece uh, choreographed by Ryan Heffington and produced by, and I think even directed by Randy Weiner, um, that has gotten delayed, according to Andrew, our good friend Andrew Hefner, uh, who was told, had tickets for like this weekend, and they said they pushed it back because like they're still working on it. Um, also, uh, not delayed is Kelly Bartnick's here. The first episode uh, tickets for that went on. Uh, like the public full, not preview version of the tickets went on sale this week up in Oregon. We just had the Overlook Festival and there are plenty of write-ups about it online. Our friend Brian Bishop over The Verge did a beautiful write-up of the piece, uh, but it also made it all over the place. Over IndieWire, Eric Cohn uh, just dropped a piece today. It's also good. There's some serious spoilers for Apartment 8. So if you're going to the Hollywood Fringe and checking out any show, uh, which was the chalet up at Overlook. Um, 
skip over that part or wait to the end and kind of come back around. It's just very exciting to see things get out there. Um, and I want to give big props to Landon and, and hopefully he's listening to the show right now. Um, you've, you've probably done more in one fell swoop to crack open this whole game than uh, anyone else has. So uh, if you see Landon out there in the world, give him some propers because uh, he done did it. He done did it. Finally, a story. And I'll talk about LA in a second. Don't don't get excited. Um, I try and put it at the end now. I'm trying to be nice to everybody. Um, stories we're following this week. Um, the main story I'm following, uh, other than what I'm going to talk about after the interview, is um, Oculus. This came out in Variety yesterday. Oculus is shut down, uh, is shuttering the Story Studio. The Oculus Story Studio uh, was, I'm just going to be blunt, the most interesting thing that Oculus was doing. Um, I don't wax poetic about the business of VR on here a lot because there's a lot of other podcasts that have room for that and, and do that. And of course, if you want to get you know really, really into the VR stuff, uh, there's no place better than Kent Buys Voices of VR podcast. Kent, who was our, our guest a couple of weeks back. Um, that's where you're going to get your, your frontline education about what's going on on the frontiers over there. I do, of course, like to look at the intersection between the digital and physical immersive uh, as much as possible here in our confines, um, which is me talking around, look, this just sucks, okay? I just, I'm going to be blunt here. Um, I, I know at least one person over at the Story Studio, so maybe you could say I'm a little biased, but... When Facebook bought Oculus, the fear was that they would just try and see it as like another part of their, you know, attempt to connect everybody and do all this social stuff with it. And as much as social can be interesting in VR, in in other ways, it is a, a highly meditative, personal experience. And if we don't nail the personal in virtual reality or the personal in AR, any of that stuff, right? I, I see it all, it's the same thing. If we don't nail that, if we don't know how to tell stories, we don't know how to nail the interface for individuals, then connecting people together, I mean, you just might as well just like tie bricks onto people's hands and tell them to shake. Uh, it's pointless. And the story studio was blazing some serious trails in terms of what's possible in storytelling in VR. And now they're not interested in backing that play anymore because apparently uh, I guess they think that selfie sticks with VR avatars is the future of VR. And I'm just saying right now they couldn't be more wrong. I don't usually put the pin down like that. We all know that I have my issues with Facebook as an entity. It's also unavoidable. And when you have an unavoidable entity, it's it's good to have issues with them. There's there's a lot of stuff that clearly they do really well and they do right. Otherwise, we wouldn't all be using it all the time. And then there's stuff like this where they uh, they lose faith. And I just got to say that anyone who's cutting their losses in the VR, AR, MX world right now, let's talk in five years and see if those were losses you wanted to cut. All right. Moving on, Los Angeles. This is the big weekend. 
uh, there's so many shows going off that when people make Instagram stories about shows and like don't name them, I literally have no idea which show they're talking about. Um, that's 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 a true story right there. Um, you've got The Willows is in previews. You've got um, oh boy, uh, uh, Chalk Reps got their fundraiser. I'm gonna be there checking that out. Uh, One House Twice, Intertext, and Home LA. Uh, I'm going to be checking that out. Johnny, The Living, the third part, final part of the Johnny cycle, which I caught the uh, final dress of last night, which I can I can easily say is the, the most ambitious project that the Speakeasy Society has tackled yet. And it's wonderful to see them working on a giant canvas in the form of the Mountain View Cemetery and Mausoleum. Like that is super exciting right there. Uh, I'm going to leave it to someone else to write the review. Uh, we got a special guest reviewer coming in on that. Um, reviewing the Willows for us is going to be uh, Juliet Bennett Ryla, who, of course, has joined the team, which I think I mentioned last week, but I can't remember now if I have. Yeah, Juliet's joined the team, and uh, I'm stoked about that um, because, you know, we, <laughs> we used to carpool to all the shows, and so it was just sort of natural that she would join the team sooner or later. Um, Clay's got the Last Supper. Um, there's just it's there's like there's too much going on in Los Angeles. Uh, an embarrassment of riches, and it's going to spill over uh, for a lot of the shows all month long. Um, so that's fantastic. And and um, also the guest today, Sophia Stoller, her show, The Other Side. Like I mentioned, it opens this weekend. I'm going to be there. Look for reviews and notes on all these shows next week. We're going to have a lot to write about, a lot to talk about. Um, and hang around for Scooby-Doo because, uh, I'm not done talking to you yet, but right now let's enjoy this lovely interview with the brilliant Sophia Stoller. That's it. Then we started. And then we so, go. We, no, we're going. Like, that, that's it. That's, that's already happened. It's already happened. Great. The, the show's begun. Yeah. Fabulous. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, we were talking a bit before the show about uh, about just, you were just saying that you, um, I, this is interesting. So, so let's start here and then yeah. let's get into the what the show is about. Cool. Uh, you were just telling me that you were describing the show to people who like aren't familiar with immersive. So repeat that yeah 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 so i you know i've been explaining what i'm doing with the show the other side um to a lot of different people and and recently i was explaining you know they said what how would you call this show how would you describe it and i said it's an immersive dance theater piece and they're like oh you know that that's fabulous like you invented that genre right and i thought that was pretty hilarious (laughs) because obviously not um but you know it's just interesting that that this kind of greater mainstream population is so unaware of yeah this huge growing movement of incredible performance and immersive experience we'll come back to that in a second because like our our pre-show conversation involved like looking dates up for things so like (laughs) i think we can like we can lay out some facts but yeah um for those who are initiated into uh the immersive thing this thing of ours uh how what is the other side um, so it is, uh, we're, we're calling it an experiment. So as an audience, you're invited into our experiment laboratory. And it's based on research from social science experiments that actually happened in the 60s and 70s. Um, the prison, Stanford prison experiment being one of them. 
and uh, Milgram's shock experiment. And so we're, we're using this real research that kind of proved basically that people are very willing to fall into roles of being compliant or even cruel towards other individuals when told to do so by a greater authority. Mm. Um, and we've kind of turned that into our own story, our own take on, on that psychological research and turned it into a dance piece. So it's, it's a lot of it is told non-verbally. Um, and then there's, there are a lot of other layers that are a little bit more direct to sort of frame the story with actors and, and video design and set design. Now I got a chance to see a rehearsal of of the core dance part of it as you started to because you're and you're layering in the other elements. How long have you been working on this piece? We started in August of last year, 2016. Um, it feels like a lifetime ago. It feels like <laughs> yeah, it feels like six years ago. <laughs> oh really? No, honestly, it does. I think I've aged ten years yeah. in the last six months. Oh, I certainly have, yeah. especially producing this show probably starting to go gray. Uh, but uh, yeah, we it started, uh, I didn't know what it was, actually. It was kind of like a weird backwards process. I knew I wanted to make something immersive. And that's something that I've had my, my eyes and heart set on for three or four years. Mm-hmm. Ever since I saw Sleep No More, I fell in love. Probably the standard story. Um, it's one of the six standard stories. Yeah. Like, bitten by a spider, parents murdered in an alley, <laughs> saw sleep no more. These are exactly. these are the traditional origin stories of right. our world. Right. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, you know, I've been a dance maker for many years, but um, once I saw sleep no more, I sort of felt like nothing mattered anymore in terms of making dance until I could create something that that could give people that same personal experience where they could really kind of dig into it. Um, I lost my train of thought of what the original question was. Uh, how uh, long have you been making it? Right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So that's my fault for making the the Spider Man and Batman. <laughs> that was joke, great. So, no. That was great. <laughs> um, so yeah. So I knew I knew that was that it was my mind of something I wanted to do, and um, and then I actually ended up getting a a space grant from Arc Pasadena, which is a beautiful space, and they they offer dance makers, choreographers to work in their space for a certain period of time each year. And, mm. um, and so I was honored to receive that. And then I was like, oh, I got to make something now. Okay, maybe this is the moment that I'm going to do this big show. Mm. And uh, held an audition. And so it really, it started with, I think I hired six dancers to start, or five even. Um, and now we have nine dancers, three actors, and many, many more supporting uh, people on the team, but yeah, we we started with um, it started with these social experiments, and and we knew it was going to be immersive, but we didn't we didn't start working in an immersive space, which is I think kind of maybe not the way it would typically go. We were in this studio, um, and so we it really started just with developing movement and and story, and went from there. It's it's kind of interesting on the, on the process side because I think. Some people, like, they don't start... I, I think it really depends on the scope and the scale of the piece and how long people wind up working. Because, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Punch Drunk or Third Rail, they will they will work for a while, I'm, I'm pretty damn certain, you know, outside of the space. And then they will construct the space either around what they've done or they'll start exploring within the space. So, like, the right. themes start. I know that for when, they, when Third Rail did Grand Paradise... They actually had a similar process for Then She Fell. They had had a series of 
uh, one-off um, experiments mm. that were thematically linked to the the final product, mm-hmm. and maybe even like just like oh like oh this thing here we can lift and bring into this new show, or they riffed off those for the new show. There was mm-hmm. one they were doing. Uh, involving like an airstream uh, camper and a family, cool. and that became part of what Grand Paradise became. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's like this assembly of different parts. Like part of Then She Fell actually came out of an Alice in Wonderland riff they did here in Los Angeles oh, cool. over at the Bank of America uh, tower mm. in the pool there. So awesome. yeah, it's, it's so it it it, is, it doesn't always go like oh we've got this space and now we're gonna work right. it. You know, it's it's sometimes the other way. So yeah. there's there's no. There's no one path. Yeah, which is sort of the beauty of it all. I'm I'm definitely yeah. learning that we've for th- throughout this process really just kind of been carving our path and ducking all of the obstacles, and that's sort of how the path has been formed. Because uh, we were originally when we started the process, we were planning to do it at Think Tank Gallery. I know mm. you're you're a friend of theirs, and and then December I was um, traveling in the Bay Area for the holidays, and I get a phone call and learned they they were no longer going to be able to host us because of their um, shifting, you know, kind of management or um, space. And so then we, we've kind of been venue jumping, which has also been just an interesting mm. piece of sort of keep, we keep reforming. We were we were thinking that it was going to be in this big open space and we were going to build walls and kind of build a maze. And they, Think Tank has these moving walls. Uh, and so the space was going to move and change as you went through it. And that was a whole big piece of kind of where we started and then we had to get rid of that entirely because the next space didn't have the moving walls. But then the next space had rooms. And so it was like, oh, well, now we can really isolate ideas and isolate storylines um, a little bit more clearly. So um, it's kind of been, you know, me me developing ideas and, and with the group kind of coming up with what we want it to be. And then also bringing in just sort of what's organically been happening and what's been out of our control. And, and I think those two sort of paths coming together has created a really beautiful uh, development. Do you think it, it leads to the possibility that the show can morph into and out of different spaces? Like now you've worked that way, it's like you've got you've got a relatively limited run yep. in May, uh, but you've poured so much work into it, it's almost like a, a shame. It's like, oh, and then it just, <laughs> just goes away. And this, this yeah. is often the truth with like any kind of development of theater. But like we were looking up... Um, we were look, trying to figure out before we started because we were talking about haunts and 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 whatnot, like which came first, blackout or sleep no more, and we found out that you know the ART production of Sleep No More and the beginning of Blackout were the same year, 2009, but there was a version of Sleep No More that had existed in 2003, so these things get developed and they get put away in a box and then brought back out and sort of morph from place to place, but is is. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you see, like, oh, one day maybe if we get a big open space of moving walls again, like, we'll break out that version of the show or explore yeah, these ideas? absolutely. I mean, I, you know, the this four-evening run that we have coming up in the beginning of May is, it was what we were able to do with, with the budget that we have, but but I absolutely see a, a longer life for this thing, and, and I would love to be able to adapt it to another space, for sure. I mean, I think it could really live in a bigger space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a big story, and, and it has, because of the sort of structural nature of it, there's, the experiment has three subject groups, or we're calling them assignees, and they've been assigned into these groups, and they're sort of um, 
given a, a context and a role to play, essentially, um, as, as normal people walking into experiment. And, and the experiment is testing how deeply they'll fall into those roles, how much they'll embody those characters, um, which in the Stanford prison experiment did indeed happen. Half the people were who come, came into the experiment, as all college students, half of them were assigned randomly to be prison guards. The other half were assigned to be prisoners. And they it was sort of like, okay, now we're going to put you in the setting and see what happens. And um, within like 48 hours, they were having hunger strikes and riots and the guards were beating people. And so um, how quickly one can kind of fall into these roles is a really interesting piece of the story. But mm. But I think that the amount of groups and the amount of sort of these these different worlds that we're creating could absolutely expand. And I would, I'd love to have the opportunity to, to make it bigger, to find how it lives in another space for sure. You're, you're, you're coming into this, this immersive world in Los Angeles at a kind of an inflection point for the, the LA scene in that there's a, a massive diversity of work mm-hmm. finally starting to happen and there's there's new audiences connecting in um but go, kind of going back to that idea of like you know how how conscious in sort of the dance world that you come out of and let's talk a bit about that in a second mm-hmm. uh are people of of this sort of non-traditional immersive work this idea of you know the the, the work happening all around you and the audience being a, an integral part of, 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 of the space. Yeah. I, you know, it's from my, from my, the world that I come from and my experience in that, in the, the LA dance community. And, and it, I did my undergrad and graduate degree in LA, UCLA and then CalArts. So I, and also in the academic setting in this general area, there's not a ton of talk about it really mm. from my experience. Um, there, there's just a lot of proscenium work that's that's being made and and enjoyed um, by dance you know choreographers in LA and um, and then site specific work work or site work is a term that's often thrown around and that has been around for a really long time but it it I think is different from immersive from my understanding of it which is you know making a piece that's developed specifically for a site of of any kind. Um, and that the dancers are utilizing that site in some specific way. So um, maybe thematically the choreography is related to the history of the site or architecturally the choreography is, you know, mirroring things um, in the architecture, but but audience still generally is, is back and removed in yeah. watching that wherever it is, whether you're outside or, you know, maybe you'd go walk. Like I've seen pieces of Heidi Duckler's um, that I loved where we got to walk. There was a piece I'm remembering specifically in the respiratory hospital. I don't know if you saw that one. I didn't see that one. I know about it though. Yeah. So we got to walk from place to place and we, and, um, but I didn't, I was never interacted with directly. So it feels like it may be like a slightly different genre. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like none of the people in my immediate community are making this type of work. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm really excited to be doing something a little bit, different um you know within still within that community and working with dancers who are working in a lot of other dance companies that do primarily proscenium work but to kind of maybe bring something that those audiences are not as used to seeing or or creating 
what's been the challenge in terms of finding a way to translate out of that proscenium work into the no, the non-proscenium form? Um, I mean, with dance, it's so physical, and and this this piece in particular is is really physical. There's a lot. We take up a lot of space. I mean, that's that's the thing <laughs> that dancers do. That's what we're best at. Um, and so, so to do that because that's what I love to create, and 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 not break the integrity of my my own artistic aesthetic, which is to have a lot of movement and have a lot of space taken up, and um, to, to keep hold on to that without like killing anyone mm-hmm. in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, someone <laughs> might be disposable. Yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but that's been something we've talked about a lot from day one and something that dancers aren't necessarily really used to of like direct interaction yeah. with with audience. Like the, the, there's kinesthetic awareness of their partners, but mm-hmm. then suddenly everyone in the room is by default kind of their partner. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And and we still haven't done it. I mean, we, you got to come to our open rehearsal and that was... A test run of sorts to see, okay, with more bodies in the space, what happens? What do we need to be aware of? But even that was probably a third of the amount of audience we hope to have. And so, um, you know, we're kind of just going to have to see. But but I think we, we've spent a lot of time of uh, talking about and sort of trying to create obstacles for ourselves to rehearse with. So, mm-hmm. like, I'll just go in there and stand right in the – like, I'm I, – I, become that audience member that has no spatial awareness and like oh stands right in the middle and I'm like, okay, test me. You know, what are you going to do with me? Um, That's real. That's, yeah. That is super. I, I, I think, I think the first time I was at Sleep No More, I watched, I watched one of the cast like shove someone up onto one of the little risers oh my gosh. because they just weren't getting the idea that we're about to do a very, a dance with a very heavy metal door yeah. and maybe you don't want to be standing in this way. Like, and there's like, there's 40 other people lined up on the side, like ready to go. And there's that one person who's just like, <laughs> like needs the dog to hurt yeah. them and like bark, 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 bark. Absolutely. And there, there's no time. So there's just like shove. Yep. Right. You yep. know, like the fastest way to get a one-on-one at sleep no more is to just stand the way of a dancer and get you, in the way. You'll get that shove. There's your one-on-one. <laughs> I was shoved by it. I was showed by Macduff. It's like, yes, congratulations. You got the secret one-on-one. <laughs> nice job. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I, the, fir- the actually first and kind of only immersive performance that I did for an audience that I, that I created was with a series called Home LA. Are you familiar with them at all? Yeah. They're doing, um, gosh, I don't know if this will air before or after, but the same weekend you open their team up with intertext mm-hmm. to at uh, one of the Nutra houses over right. Silver Lake. I saw that, yeah. yeah and yeah. I know some of the artists involved yeah. in that. One house twice. I haven't seen their work yet, but I'm about to. Yeah. So they so it's that's um, led by Rebecca Bruno, who is fabulous, and she she curates these series of of dance. Um, performances that happen in homes around LA and I did one of them we did at the Women's Center for Creative Work which is not a home where people live it's actually like a an organization but it it's their office was is a converted home and so it it fit um well enough and I made a piece in the kitchen there which was tiny the smallest kitchen maybe you've ever seen um, but we went for it because I, I wanted. I have some tiny kitchens. <laughs> you so might have found a smaller one. Yeah. Um, but we, the dancers, baked cookies during the dance and then fed them to the audience. Oh my god! 
diet buster. So it was it was fun. It was good, but we did not know how many people were coming. It was you know because it was just something that I was brought on to do, and not I had no role in producing or or anything like that. I had I really had no idea what to expect in terms of outcome, and uh, and it ended up being so packed. And so that that was a good learning experience for me because basically what happened was there was a lot. They they're moving around the kitchen. They're opening cabinets taking down bowls and stirring things and then having to put things other places and sort of moving throughout this little space. And we had, it was packed full. People were sitting on the counters. People were like standing outside the window in the hallway where they needed to pass through. And they had nowhere to go, the dancers. And it it was just two dancers and they, they dealt with it beautifully. Um, It became way more interactive than we planned. (laughs) It was like picking people up off of counters, audience people and moving them. Um, but that was, I mean, it was fun. I think everyone enjoyed, even though it was it was sort of insane and the choreography totally changed. I think having, getting to have those interactions of being in the way can maybe be part of the fun yeah. for the audience. As long as the dancers are really, you know, able to deal with that in the moment. Well, it becomes, it becomes a different axis for meaning, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing that's always interesting about dance is that it, it's, People think of it even, particularly like modern dance, as being abstract. Right. And yet, I my, my mother my mother taught when I was a kid, and she had like trained to be a choreographer. So mm. like I was around dance pretty early on in cool. my days. And you know, it's it's a mode of communication. There's there's ideas, there's emotions uh, being communicated through bodies, but also being communicated through bodies in relationship to each other. Absolutely, and you know, in, it's funny because in theater, we you know we talk about that stuff in terms of blocking, right? right? It's like you go here and then go there, and it's 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 such a clunky term, and mm. it's it's kind of it always it always frustrated me that we thought of like oh this that the other thing, and like almost like who cares? Like the point is like you know whatever whatever you're, you're doing with your voice or like the the emotional intensity you're bringing, and that mm. like this physical stuff is just halfway in the way, and. When you when you see dance that's really tuned into the commune the communication side of it, uh, you start to lose the ability to verbalize what's yeah. happening. Yeah. It's like, uh, and that's the beauty of it is it's talking in a way that's incredibly natural to being human, but that our verbal centers have trouble expressing. We Absolutely. have to lean into poetry just to start to to get there. Like mm-hmm. that's the closest you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the audience is usually removed from that part of the formula because it's about the relationship of the dancer to the space or the dancer to the other dancers right. and those dynamics. And when you suddenly create this triangulation and the audience is part of that too, it's no longer watch us talk, it's talk with us yeah. through yeah. emotion. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I said earlier after seeing Sleep No More, it sort of, it, it became hard for me to get excited about any other way of, mm. of choreographing. And I think that was a big part of it was ha- having that experience as an audience member because I, I see a lot of dance and that's, you know, when when you create something, it's important that you see what else is happening and what other people are making. And, oh, God, yes. um, Of course. Yeah. And, and so... But people don't get that, actually. That's a funny thing. It's like, you know, yeah. cre- some makers don't get that and it in, in different fields. And I'm really like, well, why? Yeah. Like, you can't, <laughs> yeah. you got to... You are what you eat. You right. are what you see. Right. You know? You've yeah. got to you got to get exposed and and see what people are making for sure. Um, but I found that 
you know, and this is this is just me speaking personally, and I'm I'm sure other choreographers feel differently about this. But I after having that experience as an audience member watching dancing bodies and and um, dance becoming a narrative, it felt hard for me to get excited as an audience member watching dance that wasn't doing that. And mm. so then. From from that point, it was sort of like okay, well, jumping between being the the creator and and the viewer, how can I expect people to get excited about something that I'm not that feeling that excited to see um, if if I'm creating it, you know? So that yeah, that became it became this this thing where it was like I really I want audience to be able to experience this in a more visceral way, and because like you said, dance can be, I think dance can be hard for a general audience to connect to sometimes um it's abstract and it's it's nonverbal and it's um this sort of heightened artistry of of bodies and and um I don't know I had conversations with a lot of people after seeing my work about this sort of thing where I was just like oh you know like for example I I created a piece while I was at CalArts um called Lock and Key and it in my world it was entirely a story Mm. and then I and I spoke to people afterwards and they were like oh I had no idea it was a narrative at all which, you know, it's like, okay, that's good information. Um, <laughs> that's helpful feedback. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, yeah. And not to say that they were, you know, felt that they didn't enjoy it or that it, they weren't, they didn't feel something watching it, but just the narrative was unclear. Mm. Um, and I think there's something about if you're doing contemporary, if you're creating contemporary dance in it and it is nonverbal and, it, um, and it's abstract in that way, most people who don't speak that language or aren't educated in making dance, which is most people really, um, aren't going to know how to read it necessarily. Yeah. Um, and, and it's important to me to make work that connects to a, a broader audience beyond just other dance pe- people. Um, that's that's just one of the fascinating things about kind of all media yeah. um, is that if you if you go far enough down a rabbit hole – you know, people can't read. Like, this comes up in comic books of all things. Like, mm. you'd think, like, oh, comic books, like, those are the, the easiest things in the world. And part of the reasons why it's such a niche market is that there's a, that there's a very specific visual grammar to them. And, and I've been reading them my entire life, and there are times when I'm reading a comic book and I still can't follow a two-page spread. <laughs> I'm not sure, oh, is, do I carry over to the second page or do I stay on one page before sure. I go to the other one? Sure. And, and different, different artists use different ways it's 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 tricky and that's definitely true in 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 dance particularly as you know you know you post the era of the ballet russe as we got into modern and and things got more abstracted it definitely became such a specified language but it's funny i've been thinking about this a lot lately like years ago i saw the oakland ballet do a recreation of uh the ravel's bolero that the mm. ballet russe did mm-hmm. uh i think Najinsky like either choreographed or like definitely performed in it and it was the most theatrical thing i'd ever seen hmm. it was it was like watching a small play without words um, hmm. uh, and just super dynamic, and this they built this incredible set, and they had these elaborate costumes, and it, it told a story, but it it was also, it, it was almost cinematic in its scale. And in the Ballet Russe, you know, for those who don't know, like they they were this massive phenomenon in the early part of the 20th century, and you know, Dolly did set design for them amongst other things. So it's just these most elaborate 
productions you can possibly imagine and then some. And it always feels like to me that, you know, after cinema became sort of the, the center point for such lavish spectacle, that sort of thing got regulated. You know, it's like, oh, it's no longer, you know, relegated, not regulated. I always do that too. <laughs> relegated to like, okay, this is, this is no longer a thing we do, mm. you know, like maybe, maybe in opera, but, right. you know, like maybe, maybe in something that feels like old form. Mm-hmm. But what's so exciting mm-hmm. to me about this kind of renaissance we have in immersive is that all the old rules are, are falling out. And Absolutely. because of that, things are getting rescued. You yeah. know, people haven't been worried about story and dance, you know, outside of like, oh, well, this is the part time of year where we do the nutcracker. Right. You know, like that's it. Like once a year, <laughs> yep. like got to do the nutcracker, make, yep. you know, make our money for the season so we can do the stuff we really want to do. And that idea of like, oh, well, what I really want to do is not that. Right. It's like, oh, but like people... People are hungry for something. People, Absolutely. Yeah. That, that tangent wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> no, I mean that, yeah, I, I totally agree. I I think that there there was a, a big movement away from narrative storytelling and dance, in, you know, with the modern dance revolution and, and growing into contemporary dance. And, um, and it does, for, you know, for me as a choreographer, it feels like sort of a way to make those older ideas feel fresh again. Um, and feel new and for for somebody to be able to be inside of the story as an audience member is just Mm. that that's a new concept for so many people even though it's you know this movement is growing and and is it's amazing just seeing like how many people that you're connected to before we started the conversation of all of these companies who are making immersive work and it's amazing but then there's still so many people that don't know about it and so to, to offer those experiences to the people who like haven't had that taste yet is something that's really exciting yeah that, that's that's the most exciting thing going on this year is like the new audiences who are coming in, whether they're coming in from the haunt community or they're coming in from the dance community or they're they're still coming in because, you know, because Center Theater Group is like experimenting with these things. And so folks are like, oh, you know, we, I can I can be inside. I can be inside the story. And yeah. then what sort of the, the ethical and moral dimensions of what happens when you put someone inside the story and mm-hmm. you start to break down the idea of the protagonist right. or you make the audience members the protagonists. There's there's all these spaces we go from. And, and part of it always feels like a reaction to what the internet's done to our own lives. You know, we go from a phase where we had the Hollywood machine, you know, stamping out the hero's journey, which I love, right? Like Star Wars and the hero's journey, huge thing. But then every single thing is at this standard issue hero's journey. And here's what the protagonist is. And the protagonist takes a certain form. And, and some people get that so baked into their, to their minds that even in the negative, they can't, they can't escape that dialectic, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the reverse justice only comes in the form of, of, you know, someone rising to be the protagonist, right? It's not this idea of, guess what? Everyone's the protagonist of their own story. So yeah. you've got to, got to create this perspective and it's not a perspective you can do from top down. Cause then it's like, Oh, it's just ants. It's actually diving deeper in and suddenly realizing you missed something and you got to seek somebody else out in order to understand what's really going on, mm-hmm. which is how the world works. <laughs> so there's this like, there's this kind of moral lesson underneath the very fabric of immersive. Totally. Um, because you're going to miss something, you yeah. know, even in Sleep No More where they, they loop it, which is the most genius thing they do. And you've got a loop thing going yeah. on yeah. in the other side, which is which is so I'm so thankful for uh, because I think a lot of a lot of what we miss here in, in the L.A. scene um, is 
because of the limitations, because of throughput limitations or, you know, all kinds of limitations of scale, you know, there isn't a loop to a lot of the work here mm. to the point where some people deliberately go back and try and loop and see what they, you know, let me what pick a different, miss. what they missed or yeah. what if I make, or if it's really interactive, they make different choices. Right. That you have a loop in this piece, that Sleep No More has a loop, lets, lets people make different choices on where they're going and lets them start to piece it together. But there's still more than they're going to be able to get. I th- right. You know, right. Um, and that I think is valuable as well. I love that. I mean, that's, I think that's a thing that we're, we're trying to create that experience for people where, you know, there's little um, Easter eggs or carrots around, you know, where people can, can find a little clue that most people won't ever see or, you know, giving, giving those individualized experiences is something that we're really trying to dig into. Mm. Um, We'll see how successful it is, but but that's that's one of our goals is to give that experience where if you were to come back, maybe you could have it ha- do it a different way. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the interactive level and and working with Jamie in a second, but mm-hmm. but first let's flash back to before the thunderstruck and you, you saw something <laughs> more. Like what was what was your pathway before this disrupted your life? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, I I've, I've been making work in LA. Um, since I, I moved here in 2006, um, starting call, you know, in my undergrad, I, that's kind of where, where it, it began. And I realized this is something that I must do. Um, and, you know, people have said this to me before and I'm like fully understanding it now, which is don't, don't sign on to be a choreographer as a, as a career path, unless it's something you have to do. <laughs> and, um, and I like fully understand that now because it's totally masochistic and it's, it's very difficult and there's not funding for dance. And um, you, you have to be willing to kind of like kick down one door after another and have that stamina, um, which I've questioned here and there. But it ultimately, like if I'm not doing it, I'm miserable. So here we are. Yep. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I've been, you know, I'm still relatively early in my career. I've been creating work for mostly in LA and, and smaller festival style shows. Um, my uh, first kind of evening length work that I created was at CalArts and, and I, you know, that was a fully produced multimedia performance. And that's where I really, during my, during my time at CalArts, I, I fell in love with collaboration, you know, mm. as a, as a huge tool to, um, exponentially expand what dance can be for as an audience experience and as a, as a creator's experience too. Um, so before that, I, you know, I, I was doing a lot of converted studio showings and, you know, smaller scale, which is a lot of what happens in LA in dance. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a lot of these sort of informal performances, which are great and it's, you know, tight knit community. And, um, but, but having that, being able to bring technology into it is something that I really kind of got connected to at CalArts and there's amazing resources and artists there that I got to meet. And then that, from there, I kind of like scooped a bunch of people up and was like, you know, let's keep making stuff. And so um, almost everyone working on the other side is came out of CalArts, actually. Yeah. The, CalArts mar- yeah, the CalArts Mafia is strong, yeah. Uh, yeah. particularly in Los Angeles. Like, yeah. uh, the speakeasy kids are, are CalArts yep. Mafia, for instance. Absolutely. Um, you, see, you brought up co- collaboration, and I mentioned Jamie, uh, mm-hmm. Jamie Peterson earlier, who was like one of the first guests on this show, yeah. like years ago now. Yeah. Um, you know, back... Back, back before the dark times, <laughs> before the empire. Um, the um, sorry, I probably just pissed somebody off. I don't care. Um, the 
how 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 did that come about, and how is that going? Uh, so it's the best thing. I adore Jamie. Um, so we and, and, and describing. I guess we should describe what it is he's doing. Yeah, yeah. So his his official title, which is is maybe less official in the sense that I don't know if many people have this title on their show, but we're calling him the consulting director, um, and he came in. Uh, about halfway through the process. So, so you know, like I said, we started in a dance studio with dancers. It was just me and the dancers. Um, collaborators kind of came on over time. We started integrating video. We started bringing um, a composer into the room. And our one of our video designers, Keith Scratch, who um, worked, I guess hasn't actually worked directly with Jamie ever, but they knew each other from the New York scene and knew that they were both in L.A. and had always kind of had eyes on each other to maybe work together at some point. Um, and when the narrative, the experiment narrative started forming in this show, it originally was, was more of just like a, a humanity narrative inspired by the experiments. And at a certain point we realized the context of the experiment is actually like really part of what makes this so interesting mm. rather than just pulling the findings of the experiment and right. taking that at a human level. And so... We brought the experiment layer in and then it became clear we were going to need actors to sort of frame the whole thing because um, with dance alone, like, you know, like I said, and maybe I'm traumatized now from that conversation of, I didn't know you were making a narrative, but, um, <laughs> but I, it, you know, I, I really wanted it to be clear. I wanted people to have a, a clear frame for what yeah. they were walking into because dance alone can, can be misread sometimes or it's, uh, it's hard for people to fully get um but the the story with with the ability to have actors sort of setting it up felt like it could be really clear and give mm. people maybe if you hand you know if you hand people something that's a little more direct then then there's a lot more space to be able to read into the layers from there right um and so that's where that's where keith introduced me to jamie because we were talking about it and i was like you know what i'm not a theater director like i could pretend that um but I want this to be really good, and I want to bring someone who has a lot of experience in that and, and is a professional in that realm to work with me on this, um, because directing movement is really my expertise and, uh, and not the other. And so Keith and I were having a conversation about that, and, and Keith has been kind of on the, on the ground floor all the way through of helping build the story with me as well. Um, and has been really invested in that side of it. And so he, he, we were looking for actors and he was like, maybe Jamie would want to act in this. Let me, let's just, let's have a meeting. Mm. And then it, it became clear very quickly that he was, he was going to be more useful to us in more of a director, mm. um, consulting role and story building role and, and not actually performing in it. Um, so that's, that's how it started. And, you know, he, he has a baby and he's, um, he hasn't been working directly in the scene in, in a little while he's working in the film, uh, scene. And so he was excited to kind of jump back in. Um, and I, you know, it was unclear how deeply he was going to dive. And then after the first rehearsal, we were, it, we yeah. just, we both felt that it was a, a match made in heaven in terms of how we work together. So it's such a joy for me to see him back in because just literally within showing up to that work open rehearsal and like within like five minutes of talking with Jamie again and just his approach to this material and and the language he's using around it, I was just like, brother, we've missed your voice. <laughs> yes, you know, like things things have gone in in so many interesting directions, and I'm so thankful for it. But like his his the, his eyes. 
and what he processes through have been sorely missing and just in my in my own engagement yeah. with the material so like just just for my own purposes <laughs> i'm so so covetous of this because like it's brought jamie back into the fold and i'm yeah. so thankful for that and and the foundation of what you laid with the dance is is so strong already i mean like i, I gave you that that feedback that night mm. um and and now i'm just just giddy at the prospect of what happens when you fold the steel and you bring that guy's eyes into it <laughs> and it starts getting it starts getting even more I don't want to say deep or complex it's not exactly but there's this, this but having that having that frame and having yeah. having layers. That, having those layers and 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 letting letting there be this opening up this space not just opening up the space between the audience and the performers in terms of uh, what their connection is, but but populating that, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. putting things in there because I feel like there's th- that space exists. And maybe that's even like in any kind of performance, there is this space that exists between the audience and the performers. Right. And the difference in, in, in anything that's immersive is that people are playing with it and populating it. And so it's not just left... Not just left to chance, not just left to interpretation, but the whole idea of priming, mm-hmm. priming mm-hmm. minds for what they're going to experience, and that's what enables them to draw certain conclusions. Exactly. Um, yeah, and it, you know, day one. I mean, I did. I had no idea that actually Jamie has a little bit of a ba- uh, dance background too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that, but. Um, he, you know, I expected like, oh, I'm going to kind of hand him off on the, the so the experiment leaders, the, 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 the control system of this world are, are is um, actors and, and the design world kind of merged together. And so I was sort of like, this will be something that I kind of hand off to Jamie and we collaborate on. And then he started coming to the dance rehearsals and that he actually had so much to offer there too, which I didn't necessarily expect. Um, but yeah, he's just got a really great mind in terms of how you know even even when it's purely physical when it's just bodies in space how you can sort of give beats of storytelling in a way that really leaves a a, a lasting effect or an emotional effect uh, for the viewer yeah so that's that's been really great and there's a lot of punch to this um what what are your what are your hopes you know we, we definitely you know that you want legs for this piece mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in, a, in a broader sense, like, yeah. what, what are your hopes in, in terms of working this way? I mean, you know, it, it's I'm sort of like in the in the thick of it in this moment where it's like hard to see past May 13th a little bit. But but in a in a broader sense, I I can't really imagine going back now is sort of how I mm. feel like this process has been so exciting and and so different from anything I've ever made because of the immersive nature of it. Um, I mean, yeah, I've just been like kind of in a state of excitement for the past eight months of, and I'm so excited to to share it with people. And I think, I imagine that I will definitely be making more immersive work after this, um, and kind of staying in this realm as much as I can. Uh, and yeah, and hopefully this piece grows or continues as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Sophia, uh, tell us, uh, how to connect with the show and connect with you. Yeah, so um, the my website is sophiastoller.com. Um, if you add a slash the other side to that, you'll get all the ticket info. Um, the show premieres May 5th and runs May 5th, 6th, 12th, and 13th at Gramercy Studios. And um, 
yeah, you can you can get in touch with me on my website, uh, also on Facebook, Sophia Stoller Dance. And I actually just founded my company. We're sort of in a soft launch process, but Iris Company is is the the company name that I'll now be under. So we're in the process of sort of making that transition. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, Sophia, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Noah. Once again, I want to thank Sophia Stoller for being our guest on the show today. You can catch up with her at sophiastoller.com. Now, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to do a lot of the credit tags, and then there's just a little bit of a, of a, of a jazz riff I want to do for you guys. So how do you get a hold of us? Well, the core thing is noproscenium.com. That's N-O-P-R-O-S-C-E-N-I-U-M. No, I didn't know how to spell it either reliably until I was doing this all the time. Dot com. No, just noprosinium.com. Don't put that other thing in. At noprosinium is who we are on Twitter. I'm at Noah J. Nelson on Twitter in case you like pictures of food and, and, and Star Wars memes. Um, our email is, my email is Noah at noprosinium.com. The Patreon, which is very, 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 very helpful because I want to cover the gas that people spend to go review shows for you that's patreon.com slash no proscenium yeah that's a stretch goal i'm putting in there please cover the gas of the people who are writing for me for free because people should not have to pay for the privilege of reviewing shows um the medium collection where those reviews can be found is medium.com slash no dash proscenium are we gonna fix that oh we're gonna fix that soon um, I want to end the show in general. Uh, oh, oh, the music for the show is by Chris Porter, who also did an amazing job for Johnny the Living's. Uh, they did a podcast kind of radio drama catch up thing slash reminder that summarized the first two shows. Uh, it, it's really good. I, I listened to it in the car, like right before I went to the show. It's just so good. Good job, Chris. Um, Thank you, Chris, for making the music for this show. Now, you can turn it off now if you want, or you can, as we bring the train into the station, uh, shout again, again, and and ride some Big Thunder Mountain here. So, oh boy, don't take that the wrong way. Um, now the coffee is working. Um This has been a really interesting week um, because there's some turbulence out in the ARX world in terms of some um, some experience stuff that seems to have gone a, a, a little bit wrong. Um, what's nice about 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 the, the the big story is that it's it's just it's resolved now. And I think it makes a really good case study in terms of how to handle when things go wrong in an ARX. And that is, there was a story uh, written up in BuzzFeed about the Overlook. They were doing a, 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 a diary. Um, and there was a, a, a logistical screw-up, um, and the writer of that piece was tracked onto the wrong level of, of uh, engagement. Um, now... The great thing is that from from where I am sitting is that 
the production team proactively hopped in with the apology, are sincere about it, seem to be kind of like mortified that that the, the snafu happened. And this is the thing about these genre-bending, line-blurring affairs, is that mistakes are going to happen. And there's such great potential in the ARX world for, particularly if you're really riding the line, because you are playing with people's perceptions, because that is literally the name of the game, is bending reality to where you don't totally know what's really at stake. And that's, for a lot of people, that's the joy, and that's what's exciting. But I'm going to quote Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn here and say, you know, perception determines your reality. And if there's anything the current state of the world teaches us, sorry for banging the microphone, is that um, you can really alter people's patterns, affect people's beliefs, if you inundate them with a certain amount of, of information. If you cut them off from all our information sources, I mean, this is, this is something we all know, right? Anyone who knows anything about cult programming knows that that's one of the things you do. You isolate and, and you surround. Um, and I'm not saying that ARXs are a cult. I'm not at all. If anything, they are a space to play with that energy and to consider it um, because there's a core lesson in it about what you're presenting to people what they take away from it, and deep underneath that root is the fact that the principle, the first principle of experience design is consider your audience. Consider what it is they're going to take away. What are they bringing into the experience that's going to color how they perceive what you're setting out. And you cannot, you cannot prepare for every contingency. And that's never what I'm going to advocate here, right? We're human. And, and even the AIs, they're only as good as what we put into them. And there's amazing research being done by folks at MIT uh, showing just, you know, how biased our AIs are because, you know, what you program in and the assumptions they make about the world is is how those AIs then go and, and perceive the world and the outputs they make. And so it is true with immersive experience design. In fact, in some ways, we've got it easier than any artificial intelligence that's trying to generate a narrative world because we've got human judgment and we can read people a little bit faster on the fly. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that everybody takes things a little bit differently. So in all things, at all times, because in some other corners of this universe, I see some agitation. Um, I want, whenever possible, everybody, if there's ever a flare-up, out in the fan community about anything. I want everyone to 
take a moment and always try and see things from the other person's perspective. Always in all things. Try and think about, you know, what if I was in that person's shoes or for designers in particular, if you see something happening, if you see a member of your community or if you see someone at the edges of your community and they're reacting in a certain way, uh, the question to ask is, what is it that is causing this perception? How, how did this, this come to be? What conditions are present? Could it be that it's something more about the baggage that someone is bringing to your experience? Could be. But there's a hook that they're able to rest their baggage on. Do you want that hook to be in your experience? That's, that's what you're responsible for. That's, that's the question you must answer, right? You, you have to answer it. You can't avoid it. I'm not saying you have to be responsible for other people's feelings. That's a choice you get to make in this life as a human being. The degree to which you do, who you choose to be responsible for, that's all, that's, that, that is something no one should dictate to you. That's my personal feeling about it. But whether or not there is a place for someone to land a particular type of baggage, and you won't know it until it shows up on your doorstep most of the time. You can, once it's happened, you, you know how to look for it. But that's, that's your space. That's what you're designing. That's part of your design. So consider that as part of your design. I hope that was coherent. Um, I hope that I'm, I, I'm not the type of person who wants to like throw fuel on any fires that are ever going on. Um, but I do want everyone to think about this particularly those of us who are on the creative and the media side, and I'm speaking both to the creative and the media side people here right now, try and look at this always with the question of what is someone who just doesn't know anything about this stuff? What do they take away from an experience? What do they take away from how we talk about the experiences? Because we're still a weird corner of the world. And what's beautiful about what happened with the overlook in this past week on the positive side of things is that more people now know that this stuff exists than did before. And I'm not saying that, you know, the overlook is bigger than sleep no more than she fell or any or delusion or tension or anything, right? or seeing you is going to be, or, you know, the Ashbury Park project piece that Third Rail did in Chicago, or Sweet and Lucky. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that a new group of people were exposed to this, and that's at the level that we're at right now. I often talk about this universe as if it's like the indie rock scene. And there are people who, you know, a band shows up in town, uh, they've never seen that band before or heard music like that before. And suddenly that's like, that's just the world and that's how it is. And it's like, whoa, my gosh, 
Well, the beautiful thing, as my experience last night at Johnny the Living, because I had I had someone along with me, someone who performs in immersive theater all the time, but who uh, hadn't been to a speakeasy show. And what we were both remarking on afterwards is just how radically different, even here in Los Angeles, how radically different everyone's approach to the material is. So remember, it's always someone's first day. Think about what people on the outside are perceiving because everyone in this scene is an ambassador. And yeah, I, I wish it wasn't a scene. I wish we were bigger, but we're, we're but you know, also great. We're, we're past small tribe and we're up to scene. Fantastic. We're all ambassadors. Okay. Every single one of us. So that's the note. That's the rant. Um, be good to each other. As I noted, I'm going to be out and about this weekend. So next week on the show, going to be a fun one. We've got Daniel Montgomery and Justin Fix of Creep LA and The Willows to talk about the show. Long overdue having those guys on this show. Uh, the My Hot Left guys had them on their podcast this week. We're next week. Because we don't want... <laughs> Mike and I were talking, we're like, let's not, let's not have it be like the same guests on the weekend. But it's great because like the show is officially opening next week. So this is, this is perfect timing. Got a really special one lined up for the week after that. And then after that, episode 100, which we're going to do something fun for, which I'll tell you all about next week, which I'll need your help with. So... Until next time, I'll see you at the show.